Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of mass murder and torture. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the middle of February 1524, 39-year-old Pedro de Alvarado led a coalition army into Guatemala. Alvarado was a veteran of the conquest against the Aztec Empire, and he intended to heighten his career by conquering this region, too. However, the territory proved more arduous than any he'd ever encountered. There were thick groves of cacao trees and highlands so steep that the horses could barely climb them. But the worst came when Alvarado stumbled upon a gruesome discovery. A few days after entering Guatemala, Alvarado's expedition found the mangled bodies of a woman and a dog. Alvarado asked his interpreter what the disturbing sight meant. The interpreter explained the local Quiche people had sacrificed the woman and dog as a challenge to the Spanish invaders. As Alvarado gazed upon the carnage, he decided to accept the bloody challenge. But neither the indigenous population nor even Alvarado's own men could have imagined the utter brutality he was about to unleash. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're traveling back to the 16th century and exploring the lives of the Spanish conquistadors. Today, we're diving into the life of Pedro de Alvarado, a lieutenant of Hernán Cortés during the conquest of the Aztec Empire. After the fall of Tenochtitlan, Alvarado led his own expedition into Guatemala and ruthlessly slaughtered the indigenous Mayans in his hunt for wealth. Even among his peers, Alvarado garnered a reputation for deceit, arrogance, and greed that solidified his status as one of the most cruel conquistadors of the era. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. 
She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. As with many of the early conquistadors, Pedro de Alvarado was a product of Reconquista, a series of religious wars in which Catholic Spain aimed to reclaim the Iberian Peninsula from the Moors, who were Muslim. Born sometime around 1485, young Alvarado absorbed the crusading warrior spirit of the soldiers returning from battles in Granada. Their tales lit Alvarado's fire for adventure and reckless bravery. Once, as a young boy, he walked across a long length of scaffolding high above the streets of Seville simply to show people that he could. It was a dangerous and unnecessary stunt and a preview of the type of impetuous man he'd become. Alvarado felt that courage and adventure was in his blood, as both his grandfather and uncle were members of the Order of Santiago. Established in the 12th century, this Catholic military brotherhood was dedicated to reclaiming Spain from the Moors. Alvarado himself never joined the order, but as a devout Catholic, he sought to emulate the proud successes of his crusading uncle and grandfather. It also didn't hurt that fighting in the name of God and Spain put money into one's pockets. Even as a young man, Alvarado had expensive tastes. He enjoyed fancy clothes, wore a gold chain around his neck, and lined his fingers with gold rings. As he grew older, Alvarado hungered for more wealth and glory. Like many Spaniards of his era, Alvarado was exhilarated by tales of the newly discovered Americas and the opportunities waiting in these uncharted lands. So he looked to satiate his cravings in the new world. Around 1510, 25-year-old Alvarado persuaded his four younger brothers to join him on the long, difficult journey to Hispaniola, the island that is now Haiti and the Dominican Republic. However, Alvarado didn't stay on the island colony for too long. In 1511, he joined Diego Velazquez's conquest of Cuba. While on this expedition, he met and befriended Velazquez's secretary, Hernán Cortés. We don't know specific details about Alvarado's participation during the Cuban conquest. However, it is quite likely that he at least witnessed and took part in some of the ruthless fighting against the indigenous Cubans. As a man who became known for his quick and fiery temperament, the Cuban conquest likely informed Alvarado on how to confront Spain's enemies with unrelenting violence. After the conquest, Alvarado was rewarded with a large encomienda, a land grant which also provided enslaved indigenous labor. In effect, the encomienda was a form of communal slavery. Though running an encomienda made Alvarado rich, he yearned for more adventure. So, in the spring of 1518, he left Cuba to join Juan de Grijalva's expedition into the Yucatan Peninsula. Traveling through the Yucatan, the expedition routinely met with local indigenous people, collectively called the Maya. Initially, the Spaniards and the Mayans acted cordially toward each other and exchanged gifts. Many Mayan villages even provided food and water for the Spanish expedition. 
But more than once, the conquistadors overstayed their welcome. They frequently annoyed their hosts with incessant requests for gold. Sadly, this behavior occasionally led to violence. At the town of Champoton, for instance, Mayan warriors attacked the Spaniards because they demanded too much water and gold. Many Spaniards were injured during this attack, but thanks to their advanced artillery, they easily defeated the Mayas. As the expedition came upon other villages, the Spaniards learned that the local gold actually came from a wealthy empire to the west. To them, this was good news, because the gold they'd acquired so far wasn't enough to satisfy them. So the expedition pushed on to find the source of the precious metal. As they pushed deeper into the interior of the peninsula, they came across an indigenous people called the Totonics. They warmly received the Spaniards and showered them with food, clothing, and gold, likely because they saw the Spaniards as a potential useful ally. At the time, the Totonics were the vassals to Tenochtitlan, the Mexica city-state within the Aztec Empire. Knowing of the Spaniards' success in battle, the Totonics believed that they could overthrow Mexica dominion over the region. Supporting them was a means to freedom from Tenochtitlan. But the Spaniards had little interest in the matters of indigenous politics. They had other pressing concerns. Grijalva, Alvarado, and the rest of the expedition debated their next move. Alvarado advocated establishing a permanent settlement in the area as a base for future expedition, or as he more bluntly suggested, outright conquest of the region. However, Grijalva rejected this plan. His commission from Governor Diego Velasquez only gave them permission to explore and trade in the Yucatan, not build settlements there. And since Grijalva was the leader, he decided they would ultimately return to Cuba. Grijalva sent Alvarado ahead of the rest of the expedition to deliver a report to Velasquez. Alvarado was also to deliver the gold they had acquired. Alvarado obediently followed orders and returned to Cuba, where he promptly took the opportunity to undermine Grijalva. He told Velasquez that the expedition had been too modest, that it was a mistake to not establish settlements. Swayed by Alvarado's testimony and the mountain of gold he'd brought as evidence, Velasquez commissioned another expedition. This time, they had the express purpose to settle and conquer the Yucatan. But Velasquez considered Alvarado too temperamental to lead the mission. Instead, he chose his own protege, Hernán Cortés. Cortés and Alvarado had a long-standing friendship, so Cortés subsequently named Alvarado his second in command. Together, the two men led a charge into the Yucatán that would change the course of history. In February 1519, the Cortes expedition left Cuba and headed toward the Yucatan. Impatient as always, Alvarado separated from the main fleet. He arrived at the island of Cozumel before the rest of the expedition and immediately looted the local villages. When Cortes arrived, Alvarado boasted of his raids, expecting to be rewarded. Instead, Cortes reprimanded him in front of the others, and he demanded Alvarado return the plunder to the villages. Despite feeling justified in his actions, Alvarado obeyed orders and returned the treasures he and his men had stolen. 
It was a humiliation, but Alvarado knew his best chance at conquest was to still follow Cortez into the heart of the Yucatan. With Alvarado put in his place, the expedition pushed on. They came across more indigenous towns and villages, and few were happy to see the foreign invaders. Some even led attacks against them, which Alvarado helped to violently suppress. As the Spaniards pressed on, the commotion they caused drew the attention of Emperor Moctezuma, leader of the Aztec Empire. Hoping to deter the Spaniards from raiding Tenochtitlan, Moctezuma sent lavish gifts as a kind of bribery. Instead, the gifts only encouraged Cortes to find Tenochtitlan faster. But not everyone agreed with his plan. Many of his men believed they accomplished their original goal and wanted to return to Cuba. However, others sided with Cortes, including Alvarado. He'd initiated the expedition in the first place with the goal of conquest, and Tenochtitlan would be a valuable prize. Hungry for fame and fortune, Cortes conspired to usurp the expedition to get his way, and Alvarado helped. They divided the men by those who wanted to return to Cuba and the others who wanted to stay. In the summer of 1519, while some of his men returned to Cuba, Cortes stayed behind and established the town of Veracruz. Cortes then established a new town council of men loyal to him and promptly resigned as the expedition's leader. Then the council immediately elected Cortes as the captain general for this new colony. Thanks in part to Alvarado's loyalty, Cortes essentially declared himself legally independent from Cuba. With Cortes now free to do as he wished, he and his army set out toward Tenochtitlan, with Alvarado at his side. Journeying into the vast, unknown jungles of the Aztec Empire, Alvarado likely believed he was on the brink of seizing his moment of glory. As Cortes's second, he was in the best position to benefit from the expedition's conquests. But instead of bringing fame and fortune, Alvarado's actions would threaten the entire expedition and result in the deaths of thousands of innocent Aztecs. Coming up, Alvarado is consumed by bloody paranoia. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1519, 34-year-old Pedro de Alvarado helped Hernán Cortés consolidate his control over the expedition toward Tenochtitlan. Alvarado craved glory as much as Cortés, and he wasn't going to let political conflicts in Cuba ruin their voyage to the Mexica capital. However, Alvarado was temperamental, 
and had a proven track record of disobedience when he disagreed with his superiors. As the expedition pushed toward Tenochtitlan, it became obvious that Alvarado could become more of a liability than an asset. The expedition left Veracruz in early August. For the next two and a half months, they alternated between using diplomacy to acquire indigenous allies and massacring entire villages. There was a dark, ulterior motive to their brutality, to let Emperor Moctezuma know that the Spaniards meant business. By striking fear in their victims ahead of their advance, the conquistadors hoped to quash resistance before it could arise. Finally, on November 8, 1519, Cortez's expedition arrived at Tenochtitlan. The city was unlike any other they'd ever seen. Alvarado marveled at the towering blue and red pyramids that seemed to pierce the sky. And as he passed through the city's large, busy marketplace, his senses were treated to a dazzling array of exotic luxuries. A year earlier, Alvarado had learned of Tenochtitlan's existence. Now he was standing in what Cortez would call the City of Dreams, the most beautiful thing in the world. When the Spaniards arrived, Moctezuma agreed to treat them as guests. Some historians say he had long feared that they were representatives of the gods and believed it better to treat them with hospitality, not hostility. Unfortunately, Cortez didn't feel the same way. Within a few weeks of their arrival, Cortez imprisoned Moctezuma and warned that anyone who dared oppose the conquistadors was to be publicly chopped to bits and fed to dogs. For the next few months, the Spaniards and their indigenous allies lived amongst the Mexica in Tenochtitlan. As they begrudgingly lived side by side, the conquistadors plotted on how to steal the city's immense wealth. But as the Spaniards made their plans, they received distressing news. In March 1520, Governor Diego Velazquez sent another conquistador, Panfilo de Narvaez, to arrest Hernán Cortés for overstepping his authority. But Cortés wasn't about to let Velazquez ruin his plans. So he decided to confront Narvaez directly, which meant leaving Tenochtitlan. While he was gone, he left a garrison of soldiers in the city, with Pedro de Alvarado in command. Before he left, Cortez warned Alvarado to show restraint if anything happened between him and the Mexica. Alvarado promised Cortez that he had nothing to worry about. But the moment Cortez left, tensions between the Spaniards and the Mexica intensified. The anxiety in the city only increased as Alvarado became more and more paranoid about Mexica attacks. He feared that Emperor Moctezuma must be scheming with Narvaez behind the Spaniards' back. Even though Moctezuma was still technically under house arrest, Alvarado noted that messengers frequently zipped in and out of the city. Then the Tlaxcalans, the Spaniards' indigenous allies, added to Alvarado's paranoia. They told Alvarado that they believed the Mexica were going to strike during an upcoming celebration called the Tashkat Festival. One morning, Alvarado saw several stakes placed into the ground around the temple square. Inquiring as to what the stakes were for, 
Atalashkalan told him the Mexica planned to use them to sacrifice the Spaniards. As he pointed to the largest stake, the Tlaxcalan explained that the Mexica had raised it especially for Alvarado. Having seen enough to startle him, Alvarado forbade the Mexica from performing ritual human sacrifice. He either ignored or was unaware of the fact that the most important part of the festival was sacrificing a young man to honor the Aztec god Tezcatlipoca. It seemed there was little chance that Mexica would obey his decree. As festival preparations continued, Alvarado discovered three indigenous people tied to monuments in the city. He suspected that the Mexica were planning to disobey his order and sacrifice them, so he ordered them to be released. But Alvarado only intended to save them for his own purposes. Alvarado interrogated the prisoners through torture, demanding to know if the Mexica planned on attacking the Spaniards. It's unclear why Alvarado believed the prisoners would know the plans of their captors, but he insisted. Finally, when one prisoner refused to speak, Alvarado had him thrown off the palace roof. Upon seeing the prisoner fall to his death, the others immediately confirmed that the Mexica were planning to attack. However, historians believe that there was almost certainly no Mexica plot against the Spaniards. More than likely, the victims told Alvarado what he wanted to hear to stop the torture. Still, Alvarado was convinced of the impending attack and put his men on alert. In the middle of May, Alvarado watched with trepidation as the festival began. For the first few days, there was no indication that the Mexica were about to strike, but nothing eased Alvarado's paranoia. On the fourth day, Alvarado couldn't take much more as he watched the spectacle of city elites gathered at the temple. The ceremonial dancing, the priests dressed in their magnificent finery. It was all too much for him, so he ordered his men to attack. Alvarado locked the doors to the temple and shouted, Let them die! Without hesitation, his men fell upon the trapped Mexica and slaughtered them. The Aztec account of the massacre described people tripping over their own exposed entrails as they tried to flee. The entire temple square became slick with blood, and many reports claimed that not a single Mexica in the temple escaped. Hearing the violence behind the walls of the temple, the people of Tenochtitlan realized what was happening, and a cry went out to gather weapons. After Alvarado finished butchering the Mexica elites, he looked out over the city and saw a massive crowd of armed citizens. Terrified, he and his men fled back to the safety of the palace. Alvarado ordered his cannoneers to disperse the crowd, but the thunder of the cannons only raised the Mexica's ire. They were no longer afraid of the artillery. Rather, they were determined to drive the monstrous conquistadors and their allies out of the city at all costs. They laid siege to the palace, hurling spears and arrows and trying to scale the walls. Though Alvarado and his men managed to hold them off, it was clear that they were trapped in the city. Their salvation finally arrived weeks later on June 24th. Having triumphed over Narvaez, Cortes returned to Tenochtitlan and retook control of the city. 
Reunited with his old friend, Alvarado tried to explain himself. He told Cortez that the Tlaxcalans had warned him of an imminent attack. Thus, he was merely being proactive with his violent slaughter. However, Cortez wasn't buying it. He reprimanded Alvarado for ruining the already tenuous relationship with the city. Still, Cortez ultimately forgave Alvarado because now he couldn't afford to lose the loyalty of a single man. Even with their Tlaxcalan allies, the conquistadors were massively outnumbered, and any hope of peaceful diplomacy was off the table. So for the next few days, the Spaniards plotted their next move. Meanwhile, Cortes demanded Moctezuma try to quiet the people surrounding the besieged palace. However, as Moctezuma spoke to the crowd, he was met with a barrage of projectiles, several of which struck him in the head and chest. The wounds proved fatal, and on June 30, 1520, the Aztec emperor died. With Moctezuma gone, Cortes had no puppet leader to pacify the Mexico population. He decided they had only one option, to flee the city. On the night of Moctezuma's death, Cortez's men left Tenochtitlan under the cover of darkness. They used pontoons to cross the water surrounding the city. But before they could fully evacuate, a group of Mexico warriors attacked. As the battle commenced, Alvarado was in command of the rear guard. As a result, his unit experienced some of the most brutal fighting. Alvarado's horse was taken out from under him, and he was forced to flee the rest of the way on foot. Ultimately, Alvarado was one of the last Spaniards to escape. He even had to use his lance to pole vault across a wide gap in the pontoon bridge. The desperate move became known as Alvarado's Leap. Though the conquistadors and the Tlaxcalans managed to escape Tenochtitlan, they left behind thousands of corpses, including some of their own men, and they lost virtually all of the gold they had worked for months to steal. But Cortez refused to accept defeat. He and Alvarado regrouped the remnants of his army and his Tlaxcalan allies. After resting for several weeks, they set out for Tenochtitlan once more. This time, they intended to destroy the city. Throughout the autumn, the Spaniards convinced thousands of indigenous warriors to join the war against the Mexica. Those who did not join them were often massacred, and Alvarado led many of these punitive expeditions. By May 1521, the Spaniards had enough allies in their ranks that Cortes ordered the siege of Tenochtitlan. Many inhabitants had already abandoned the city, as it was currently racked by an outbreak of smallpox. But the weakened population still tried to resist the fury of the Spaniards. For the next 93 days, the conquistadors and Mexica engaged in a series of skirmishes, some of them deep inside Tenochtitlan. Unfortunately for the Mexica, the Spanish coalition was just too powerful. On August 13, 1521, they officially surrendered, giving Tenochtitlan over to Hernán Cortés. By the final siege, brutal violence was the only way the Spaniards wanted to defeat the mighty Mexica. However, it was Pedro de Alvarado who set the horrific standards of cruelty. 
His paranoia and impulsive decisions sparked the slaughter of thousands of innocent people. But even with Tenochtitlan conquered, Alvarado's career was far from finished. As Cortes dealt with the fallout of his conquest, Alvarado looked to lead an expedition of his own. He hoped to spread the carnage farther south and set his sights on a new target, Guatemala. Coming up, Alvarado's army leaves a trail of blood in Guatemala. Now back to the story. In August 1521, 36-year-old Pedro de Alvarado participated in the brutal destruction of the Mexica capital of Tenochtitlan, known today as Mexico City. In doing so, he helped bring a new world civilization to its knees. But Alvarado wasn't satisfied with his gains in central Mexico. Like many other conquistadors, his thirst for wealth and glory seemed insatiable. The new world was vast, and Alvarado wanted to explore further. He knew there was untold wealth still to be seized, and he wanted to be the one to take it. It didn't take long to find his next conquest, thanks to his old friend and leader, Hernán Cortés. After the fall of Tenochtitlan, Cortés heard rumors about a region to the south that was diverse and full of riches. It was home to many different indigenous groups, and today we know the area as Guatemala. Cortes also heard reports that Mayan warriors from this region were attacking his indigenous allies in Soconusco, an area along the modern border of Mexico and Guatemala. Since these allies had converted to Christianity and sworn allegiance to Spain, Cortes was eager to make an example of his authority. So in the fall of 1523, Cortes sent Alvarado to investigate the situation. But the ambitious Alvarado saw a chance for more personal glory. He convinced Cortes to let him take an army beyond Soconusco, venturing even deeper into Guatemala. Alvarado knew this was his best chance to conquer uncharted territory. Alvarado reached Soconusco in January 1524. Once there, Alvarado met with a delegation from the Cachiquel people, one of the most powerful nations in the region. They brought him gifts of clothing, cacao, and gold. According to historian Fernando Cervantes, none of the major Mayan powers in Guatemala feared Spanish military superiority. Rather, the Cachiquel were likely trying to buy off the Spanish to make an alliance against their regional enemies, the Quiche and the Tzutuhil. But Alvarado didn't wait around to form any alliances. He was determined to continue deeper into Guatemala. Once he reached the Guatemalan highlands, Alvarado sent scouts ahead to demand the submission of the Quiche people. Instead of surrendering, the Quiche attempted to make their own alliance with the Cachiquel and the Tzutuhil against the Spaniards. However, the three tribes couldn't or wouldn't set aside their differences. Thus, the Quiche faced the invaders alone. In the middle of February, the Quiche army met Alvarado's expedition on a plain known today as El Pinar. According to Alvarado, the Quiche army was bolstered by a few minor allies and consisted of 30,000 warriors. That number is certainly an exaggeration, and historians suspect it was around three to 4,000 men. 
However, the Spaniards still had a major advantage, their cavalry. The Quiche had never fought horsemen before, and although the battle was long and bloody, Alvarado used this tactical advantage to emerge victorious. In the wake of the battle, Alvarado boasted that he personally killed the Quiche leader. This has been debated by historians, and it's likely this was a lie to magnify his own fame. This wasn't unusual as time went on, as Alvarado increasingly embellished his own mythos. After their defeat on the battlefield, the Quiche invited Alvarado to their capital city, Utatlan, to discuss the terms of surrender. But as Alvarado entered the city, he sensed something was afoot. Utatlan was quiet, too quiet. Fearing that he had been set up, Alvarado ordered a retreat. Instead of visiting the Quiche's leaders as asked, he invited them to the Spanish encampment. When they arrived, he captured them and demanded gold. When they wouldn't give him the amount of gold he requested, he had them burned at the stake. Alvarado turned his men around to fight, and Utatlan was destroyed. After attacking Utatlan, Alvarado sent messengers to the Cacchical, who had previously sought an alliance with him. This time, it was Alvarado asking for an alliance. The Cacchical agreed. They didn't want to fight the invaders, and instead saw a chance to exploit their powerful weapons. The Cacchical sent thousands of warriors to Alvarado. For eight bloody days after the fall of Utatlan, Alvarado unleashed his motley coalition army against the remaining Quiche settlements. They destroyed towns, enslaved and branded the people, and then divided the spoils of war. One Spanish historian even wrote of the campaign as a slaughter. With the destruction of the Quiche complete, Alvarado went to Ishimche, the Cacchiquel capital. Once there, Alvarado asked about their other enemies. The Cacchiquel leaders pointed to the tribes on the Pacific coast, the Tsutuhil and the Pipil. Like the Tlaxcalans in Mexico, the Cacchiquel hoped to use the Spaniards to destroy their own rivals. And in his eagerness for conquest, Alvarado was more than happy to oblige. Alvarado sent two messengers to the Tsutuhil and demanded their submission. But the Tsutuhil responded by putting the messengers to death. The executions gave Alvarado all the pretext he needed for an attack. On April 18, 1524, Alvarado and his army of Spanish soldiers and Cacchiquel warriors quickly captured an important Tsutuhil stronghold. This defeat was enough for the Tsutuhil to promise not to cause any more trouble for Alvarado. With the Tsutuhil pacified, Alvarado then turned toward the Pipil. Their indigenous lands were in what is now El Salvador. His invading army marched toward their capital city, Cuscatlan, and destroyed any settlements along the way. But this journey south was more brutal than earlier marches. His army crossed hundreds of miles of rugged, hilly terrain. Meanwhile, locals would initially feign hospitality, only to subsequently attack the Spaniards. And with each skirmish, Alvarado was losing men. Even Alvarado himself didn't emerge unscathed. During an especially tough battle, a Pipil arrow pierced Alvarado's leg, 
causing him to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. Yet Alvarado's army pressed on. By the time the Spaniards reached Cuscatlan in mid-June, the Pipil had learned to avoid facing the conquistadors in pitched battle, where Spanish cavalry proved decisive. Instead, they retreated to the surrounding forests and mountains to fight a guerrilla war. Eventually, Alvarado grew frustrated with the slash-and-run fighting and decided to flee back to Ishimche. The campaign was a failure. Upon returning to Ishimche, Alvarado turned against his Cacchiquel allies, though exactly why is unclear. Perhaps it was due to the lack of gold and riches yielded by his campaigns against the Quiche, the Tsutuhil, and the Pipil. Whatever his reasons, Alvarado seized the wife of the Cacchiquel king and refused ransom requests to get her back. He later insisted that he abducted her because the king had been disloyal. Then, on July 27, 1524, Alvarado decided to turn Ishimche into a regional capital for the Spanish Empire. The decision essentially told the Cacchiquel that they no longer had sovereignty over their own home. The arrogance and greed of these decisions make clear Alvarado's incompetence, especially when compared to his benefactor, Cortez. For all of Cortez's cruelty, he had been smart enough to keep his Tlaxcalan allies loyal, cleverly exploiting the political animosities in Mexico to his own benefit. But Alvarado lacked Cortez's cunning. Instead, he was little more than a bully who failed to realize what a colossal blunder he was making by antagonizing his most important allies. As a direct result of Alvarado's provocations, the Cacchiquel rose in rebellion. The Cacchiquel's alliance with Alvarado had lasted six months, but their rebellion would last six years. However, Alvarado didn't stay to fight the wars he started. Instead, he tasked his men to suppress the rebellion. And in 1527, Alvarado returned to Spain and convinced the crown to name him supreme governor of Guatemala. Alvarado returned to Guatemala three years later just in time to receive the surrender of the Cacchiquel rebels. Unsurprisingly, his demands included a sum of gold that was, quote, extreme even by Alvarado's rapacious standards. With the Cacchiquel now defeated, there was no indigenous nation to challenge Alvarado's rule in Guatemala. But Alvarado didn't want to actually govern Guatemala. Instead, he left the actual administration of the colony to his brother Jorge. Rather than rule day-to-day, he spent most of his time overseeing the construction of a fleet that would take him to South America. It seemed Alvarado still craved conquest and now hoped to take part in the subjugation of Peru. In 1535, Alvarado gathered together at least five ships, 1,500 soldiers, and various horses and weapons. He set sail for Ecuador and eventually made it to the Andes Mountains. Alvarado still had a thirst for conquest, and he wanted to take leadership over Francisco Pizarro's men in Peru and dominate the Kingdom of Quito. However, Pizarro wasn't interested in letting the impetuous Alvarado take control, so he bought Alvarado out for a small fortune. 
After returning from Peru, Alvarado accepted a job in northwestern Mexico in 1539. The indigenous Mixtón people had risen up in rebellion, and the Spanish commander needed Alvarado's help to defeat the rebels. But after losing a battle against the Cashcan over a year later, Alvarado was in the middle of a retreat when his horse suddenly got spooked and bucked him off. Alvarado fell to the ground and the horse fell on top of him. He knew he was gravely injured, and when one of his men asked where he felt pain, Alvarado allegedly replied, in my soul. A few days later, on July 4, 1541, 56-year-old Alvarado succumbed to his wounds. While he's not considered the most influential of the conquistadors, Alvarado's actions in the New World certainly had a bloody impact. His recommendation to Velazquez inspired Cortez's expedition to the Yucatan, and his massacre in Tenochtitlan's temple accelerated the downfall of the Aztec Empire. Of course, had Alvarado not led the charge into Guatemala, another conquistador likely would have. But Alvarado's recklessness, greed, and temper ensured that the conquest was especially bloody and horrific. He often stumbled into some blunder in the pursuit of wealth and fame, sparked a gratuitous bloodbath, and then left it to others to fix his mess. In this way, few conquistadors personify the confused brutality of the Spanish invasion better than Pedro de Alvarado. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll begin our look at the life of Francisco de Coronado, the conquistador who explored the American Southwest. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Joe Guerra and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Mary Mathis, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Joshua Kern. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free, only on Spotify.